uh, even the songs that we've sung, indeed, Jesus paid it all. We start thinking about that as Paul has described us, that we were once in our trespasses and sins. And Father, the, the older we get, the more we understand our trespasses. The more we understand the depth of our own depravity. Father, the part of the text that you have us to go to today is, is, is a part of that, but it's to remind us that to pray, and even to pray for people we don't know. People that we may never see this side of heaven. Father, that you would give us a passion for these people. As Paul says, uh, he's in agony over it. So, Father, give us that kind of heart, that kind of love for God's people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by reading a couple of letters from the mission field. I'd like to thank God for giving us lovely brothers and sisters like you. Your amazing support to us is making us strong every day in the ministry. The Lord is giving us power and strength through your spiritual support, and financial support, and biblical resources. Thank you for sending pastor to come to teach us. We receive much courageous words from him through reading and teaching of the Word of God. Thank you for the school. May you continue praying for us. He is doing great and God's hand is amazing. May God grant you favor in His sight through this journey. We thank the Lord for having a great opportunity to spend more time with Pastor. It was encouraging and a blessing time in our studies with our teacher. Praise the Lord to keep us committed and focused with this great work which has started in this country. So we thank you for your support financially and providing materials for the school. Greetings to you all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I know that it is through grace and mercy of Christ that we are being sustained, so praise be to our Lord. Here at our church, we are doing good. We want to thank you and our brothers and sisters in Christ at PBC for your amazing love for us. Thank you for sending pastor to come to teach to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As always, we are blessed by this gift of teaching and preaching of the Scriptures. Thank you for this school. Already it is showing that many servants of God will benefit by the teaching of the Word there at the school. Thank you for your continued support for us spiritually and materially. People you'll never see. Most of you. We wish we could take all of you. Love for you to see it one time. It's one thing to see the pictures. It's another thing to smell the smoke coming off the fire. It's another thing to taste sudza. You want to know what that tastes like? Find you some 
dirt, or some, maybe some grit with no flavoring. Just chew it up. It's amazing, isn't it? It, it? it humbles us when we think of knowing their situation, knowing their economic standing, if you would. They're praying for us. Thanking us. Which leads me to ask the question, This is how do we pray for believers we don't know? You say, what, what would lead you to that text? Well, I, I actually, when I was meeting with Randy and Kimberly, we were talking about the text, and, and I actually, all the songs were aimed at verses 13 through 15, and we're not even going to come close. I decided to back up. I know we, in our study in Colossians, some of you don't even know we were in Colossians, so we were in chapter 2, and I decided to go back to the start of that. But I want to ask the question, how do we pray for believers we don't know. Paul says in verse chapter 2 verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay to sea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Never seen them. How do you pray for people like this? In the ministry, we're, we're constantly asked by people to pray for people. People we've met. We know something about people we don't know. We're asked to pray for family. We know nothing about your family. We're asked to pray for friends. And it can, it can include prayers of that they're lost and they need to be saved. And that's, those are all good prayers. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing the prayer or the need for prayer. I'm just saying we do this all the time. We're praying for people that are lost. We pray for people that are, that are suffering. I had you to pray for Karen for years. People that are discouraged. People that are, 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 are will get bad doctor's reports tomorrow. prayer that we're often asked to pray by parents is for their children who are making bad choices. Help to find a, a good church. As I read those letters, these are people that we don't know. We, we're, we're in, when we talk about, you know, pray for somebody as they go to the doctor tomorrow, we've got some semblance of what the doctor's office looks like. Okay? We, 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 can, we can sort of picture ourselves going to the doctor's office. We, can, we've, we sat in those little teeny rooms haven't we, waiting for the doctor to come. And you are going to wait in there. That's what it's called. It's a waiting room. So you're going to wait for the doctor to come. We got, we got that kind of thing. We, and, we, and if you've lived long enough, you know people that are waiting for that doctor's report. Maybe you've read that person. You've had blood work done. You've had something done. And you're waiting for the doctor to come in and say, you got this or you don't have that. We have some summits when we pray for people about in their suffering. We, we, at least we've got some type of, of arena that we would put people in. Most of the people that we are praying for, your family and mine, aren't about to lose their life because of the faith. Right? That's not, that's not the people that we're praying for when we're asking prayers on this basis right here. Most of the time we're not praying for people that are... That are necessarily homeless. In other words, when we talk about home, we've got some semblance of what home looks like. Rooms and kitchen and little bathrooms and different sizes, but still, basically, we've got a pretty good idea what a house looks like. We even have an idea what discouragement looks like. 
Right? We, we know what it means to be discouraged over jobs or situations. And, but I'm telling you in other places, discouragement takes on a totally different front. In fact, what we would call discouragement, if we heard about their stories, we would say that's discouragement. They would say that's life. That's all that is. That's just life. You're, you're talking about... If, here's the bad thing. If we, if we shared our discouragement with these people, they would go, what are you talking about? What are you, a bunch of weenies? Right? It's all relative. Yeah, it's all subjective in many ways. Most of us don't know people personally that are starving to death. Or live in a place that's 95% unemployment. We scream when it gets to 10%. They laugh. 10%? Are you kidding? What do you pray? How do you pray? How do we pray for each other? Now, we'll say this in our prayers. One way we pray for all of those people is we use the same word for every one of them. Lord, bless them. Bless them, Lord. I've challenged you before. Take the word out of your prayer life. Take it out. And make yourself verbalize what you're praying for. Well, yeah, bless George and bless Jeremy. And you're, you're two totally different things. One's salvation and one's a sore on his ankle. Eliminate it. Well, in Paul's letter, as he has opened here, and he's already told us, and I'm going to jump back to chapter 1, look at verses 9 and following. Paul's already expressed his prayer for these people here at Colossae. And keep in mind, he's never met these people. Paul's in prison, probably in house arrest in Rome. And this guy has come to see him. Probably a good chance Paul remembers Epaphras who he is. Possibility doesn't. He's got to reinduce himself. But this is, a not, this is not across the street. Epaphras hasn't, hasn't traveled to, to Greensboro to see Paul. Epaphras has traveled the equivalence of going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. About 1,200 miles away. And I'm sure there's some guard that says, hey, there's a guy here to see you. Who is he? His name's Epaphras. I, I think I remember him. I think, I think he was, I think we saw him saved in Ephesus. But, you know, I, come in, and he comes in and he just starts sharing his heart with Paul. This is what I'm facing. The Lord's blessed. I've been able to start a church in Colossae, my hometown, and, and the Lord's blessing. But I got questions. And I need some help. Well, you realize those are serious questions if you're going to take 1,200 miles to go find out what the answer to these things are. And so Paul says in verse chapter 1 and verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That you might be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul breaks off into a theological statement about who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And then in verse 21, He reminds them that you were once alien. So He's talking to believers, isn't He? He's talking about, in fact, over in chapter 2, we're not getting to this, but in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul here is expressing a passion and care for the people at Colossae. As I said, he's never seen them, but he's always praying for them. Verse 9, I haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with knowledge. And the question you have to ask is, listen, have you ever had this happen? Somebody come up to you today and say, hey, I really need you to pray about this, and, and I'll have an answer by Wednesday, and would you pray for me? Yeah, I'll pray for you. And when they walk in the door on Wednesday, you realize what? You ain't prayed for them. Never crossed your mind. I don't think that's the way it was with Paul. Paul loved these people, not having not seen them. But he prays here to be filled with the knowledge of his will, controlled by the word. And what I'm coming around to is how do we pray for these people? Would that not be the prayer that we would have for them? A, number one, that they would be controlled by the Word, that they would be filled with all the knowledge of His will. From where? From the Scriptures. This is the reason we're not going to teach them how to do vacation Bible school. They might do vacation Bible school. We're there to teach them this. Teach them the Word. We're not there to change their culture from the standpoint of you got to sing these types of songs. We're there to teach them the Scriptures. We want them filled with all the knowledge of His will. We want those pastors to be able to stand with all authority today and proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ with all authority that He would be filled with all the knowledge that He needs to shepherd those people. Would that not be the prayer that we would have for one another? the person sitting on the pew next to you, the, even your own children, that you would pray, Father, that they would be controlled by the Word of God, that God would be so saturated in them that they live by that standard. Number two, he prays there for spiritual wisdom. All spiritual wisdom and understanding, the application of the Word to everyday life. Isn't that the trick? What does the Word of God say? How does that apply to this situation? Isn't that the rub sometimes though for us? We know what it says. We're just not sure how it applies. How does this, 
How does this get into my life? How does this change my wisdom? How do I apply the Word in my life to my everyday life that I'm saturated with? Thirdly, he, he prays that they would have understanding, this spiritual understanding, the ability to see the Word through the eyes of the Word. I said it that way on purpose. To be able to see the Word through the eyes of the Word and be able to discern right from wrong. Most of us, what we face is not necessarily right and wrong. It's right mixed with wrong. It sounds spiritual. On the surface, it may look spiritual. I mean, they're gathering. Sure, they're, they're gathering to, to preach. Aren't they, aren't they, aren't they Christians? Aren't they? What book are they preaching? What doctrine are they proclaiming? That they would have that kind of understanding, the ability to see the Word through the Word and discern right from wrong, to be able to discern error. We have the opportunity in this mission field to lay a foundation that we know if God tears His coming, it's going to be shaken by error. It's shaken everywhere else. You want to know how to pray for this and the school? You need to pray, Lord, keep error out. Lord, guard them. Number four. He prays that they, in verse 10, they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. With a passion and a desire to please Him. I'm going to say more about this in a moment. Why are you doing what you're doing? Remember growing up and you, you wanted to please your dad? And it wasn't always the best? I remember my dad loved to wash his car. Saturday was car washing day and something happened and I'm about five and I go out there and you can imagine what the car looked like after a five-year-old washed it. At least I got the soap out of it, but it was hit and miss and streaks all over it and dad could have said, son, that's the worst car washing job I've ever seen in my life. That's terrible. That's not what he said. Thank you. Thank you for attempting. Do you understand that the Lord understands our failures? He understands that. I'm not saying He, he approves. I'm saying that the Lord understands we don't always get it right, do we? But our passion is to walk in a manner fully pleasing the Lord. What would bring the Lord the greatest honor? What would bring the Lord the greatest glory? And whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. Number five, he says that I want you not only walk in a manner worthy, but bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit. You understand that we can only bear fruit if, as we're attached to the vine, according to John 15. I am the vine, ye are the branches. In fact, turn to John 15 for those that maybe don't have this verse underlined. This is, this is, a, this is, a, uh, this is a rattling verse for me. In other words, it, 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 it shakes me a little bit to understand what the Lord is, is trying to say here. And look at verse, um, we're starting verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through verse 5. I am, the, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken. But abide in me and I in you. And the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. From apart from ye, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from the indwelling part of the Lord leading in my life, apart from all that, I can't do anything. It's all Him. It's all His glory. If anything gets accomplished here, it's because God did it. God did it. That we bear fruit and we increase in the knowledge of God more to know, more to, to how to reflect His Word. Back to our text in Colossians. Uh, number four, we're, we're given... We're given strength and power. Verse 11, that you may be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance, steadfastness. Patience, long-suffering, forbearance. When it gets hard, we keep going. And then the joy in the Lord with joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, joy is not happiness, but to be beyond the circumstances. Our joy is in the Lord. Not every situation is joyful. When I heard about Karen's passing yesterday, I didn't shout for glory. I wept. She was my friend. But the more I thought about it was, you know what? She's with the Lord. Her, her faith has come sight. And so the, the sadness still there. You can hear it in me. But there's a joy there to know, man, her suffering's over. And I'm telling you, I don't know anybody that suffered more than she has at the hands of many physicians. But faith has now come sight. So we learn to walk in the joy of the Lord. Number 8 there, we find that it is giving thanks. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the, in, the, in the inheritance of the saints. He has qualified you. You didn't. We didn't qualify ourselves. We're not capable. We are sinners. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we have nothing to offer except our own sin. That's what we have. Our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. He qualified us. He, he rendered you fit. How? Through the blood of Christ. He qualified you. He washed away your sins. Look at chapter 2. Look at verses 13. I've already mentioned this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses. How did He do that? Verse 14. By canceling the record of the debt that stood against you with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. I can't wait to get to that text. Wow. Was it just... I forgive you. No, the debt was paid. The penalty was paid by someone. 
God canceled it through His Son. And so we give thanks, don't we? Can we ever stop giving thanks? We're going to spend all eternity spending giving thanks to the Lord for the salvation we have in Him. And then He reminds us that we're delivered from the main of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We have redemption. Delivered us, transferred us. We have, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The ransom has been paid. You have been bought back. Back a couple of books in Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He bestowed on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ. Hmm. Verse 11 there. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of His glory. Wow. We have redemption. The forgiveness of sin. The full pardon. The complete forgiveness that we have in Christ. But that's Paul's passion. That's his passion with his people. And I want you to notice, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul's warning to them. Paul's warning to them. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Still talking about how do we pray for people we don't know. But we also pray with warning, not only with passion, not only with, with joy to see them grow, but we also pray with warning. He said back up in verse 4, I pray this in order that you may not be deluded with plausible arguments of first warning. To be beguiled. To, to me, means to, to miscalculate. It's... Faulty logic not based upon the Word. It's false reasoning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul there reminds the church at, at Corinth, chapter 3 verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. He's warning them. He's warning them that people are going to come in with enticing words, he says, to persuade them. They are, the word actually means thieves. They're crafty salesmen to buy something you don't want. You ever had one of those? I had a guy the other day come by my house and wants to sell me um, solar panels. Alright? I'll listen. I'll listen to anybody. Did you get a free pen? I'll take free pens. Let's see. What you got? He said, well, we'll put full. It won't cost you a dime. We'll put it up there. No front-end cost. I'm like, okay, all right. I like... I, if it's free, it's for me. I, you know, so I'm saying, okay, all right. And, and, and I'm still waiting. Where's the hook? And he said, it will eliminate your power bill. Okay. How much do I pay to have my power bill eliminated? That's what I asked. How much does this gift cost me? He said, well, it will only cost you $180 a month. 
I said, I only pay 160 now. <laughs> and he said, well, we'll finance it for you. I said, for how long? 30 years. And I'm sitting here thinking, does this sound as stupid as it? I looked at the guy and said, have you actually listened to yourself, dog? <laughs> but I mean, he painted it, man. I can get you approved. We'll have them up there and they'll be beautiful. We guarantee them for the 30 years and they'll produce power, but you're going to pay for it. Crafty salesmen. You know what? The devil has those people. They're crafty. One of the biggest groups that Satan draws from is young people that are raised in our churches that don't know what they believe. And they go off to college, many to secular colleges, and they sit in science classes where these scientists, they have doctor's degree, they're supposed to know, and they tell me that creationism can't happen because it's, it's just ridiculous to believe such a thing. Like the guy who came home, dad said, what did you learn? He said, I learned power squared. He said, son, pie are round, cornbread are square. <laughs> and how many young people have been taken captive by plausible arguments? They sound right. They sound right. Don't we, don't we believe that a, a person should have uh, authority over their own body to choose? I mean, don't I have the right to choose what I want to eat or where I want to go? Don't I have that right? And we all nod at that. Well, therefore, you have the right to choose whether you want to kill the baby or not. That's a plausible argument, is it? It's slick, isn't it? It's slick. Well, this happens in theology as well. Did Christ really claim to be God? Really? You think of all the false religions. We've heard Brother Harry talk about his trek through to, to, to the Lord to draw him and everything sounded good on the outside until you got inside. And it sounded plausible. We need to pray for people. Here in Colossae, they were teaching that anything that had matter to it was evil and to the, to the denial of the Trinity. We need to pray for them. It, it says that they also have enticing words or they may delude you with plausible arguments with enticing words to persuade the thieves, the craftiness, the, the, the fine-sounding arguments. The Holy Spirit and the Word can only take you so far. You need a second blessing. You, you need to speak in tongues if you're really going to be in the know. Do you want to know what we teach here? We teach the authority of Scripture. We teach the doctrine of God and God gets to define God, who God is. We don't define who God is. God tells us who He is in His Word. The doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. 
You've heard us preach through these same things here. You heard just just heard a series finished, and we could call it the doctrine of the family. What does the Bible say about the family? What's it supposed to be? Can I offer you a warning, young people? I've forgotten what year it was that Google started. Prior to that date, I knew nothing. Now I know everything, all right? Facebook along the way. I've noticed that even people that that I love and adore, um, you can do a Bible study if you can drive with one hand and talk. Does that qualify you to do a Bible study? Here's what concerns me, young people. Young married families. I'm afraid we're turning more to the internet to find people that are in same, our same age level trying to figure out things rather than returning to what Titus says, the older women teaching the younger women how to love their husbands and how to love their children. God has given us a resource right here. That's not to say everything on there is bad. No, I'm not saying that. But what's your source of information? What's the source? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't believe in disciplining my children. Well, you didn't get it from the Bible. Discipline them. Raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's the call. Mom and dads, you're the head of your home. They aren't. They'll be glad to take it if you want them to take it. Remember, one guy was talking and the lady said, I, I, I just can't control. I just can't control him. He said, well, can I come to your house just to observe? And said, yeah, so... He's out there about breakfast time, and a little kid come in and said, "And uh, he said, well, I'm going to give you this cereal. I don't, I don't want that cereal. I want this cereal. Oh, okay, we'll get a cereal. And, and here's the blue bowl. I don't want the blue bowl. I want the pink bowl. Okay, we'll put it in the pink bowl. And, and then I want you to sit on this side because I read it. No, I, I don't want to sit on that side. I want to sit on this side. And, and here's a book I'm reading. I don't want you to read that book. I want you to read this book. And then he wondered why the child wouldn't obey him in the grocery store. Yes, I'm picking. But I'm telling you, we get information from the wrong place. Titus. Older women teaching your younger women. Listen, there are those there with crafty words. They're there to persuade. They're there to teach. They they sound fine. Their arguments sound really great. Never been a person in prison that wasn't disciplined by their children. Well, there's never been a person in prison that hadn't eaten potatoes either. What's your point? Right? Scripture. Fine arguments to drift us away. What do we pray? We pray they wouldn't be deluded. They wouldn't be taken away by these arguments. Paul's encouraging them even in the warning. He says there in verse 5, even though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. Listen, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm asking the Lord. I'm rejoicing in your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Good order. It's actually a military term. It means to, to line up for inspection of the troops. Your good order. You're disciplined. You've got a disciplined formation. You need that discipline to face the fight of error 
And then he says that your, your firmness of faith, your stability of the faith, I'm, I'm admiring that. Praise the Lord that you're, you're in good order and you're standing firm in the faith. But then in verse 6, he starts talking about their walk. And this is one of Paul's favorite subjects, by the way. If you go back to Ephesians, go back there with me, Ephesians chapter 4. We've said this often. First three chapters in Ephesians is doctrine. And when we come to chapter 4 and the rest of the book, we find it unfolding with words like this. Getting in chapter 4 verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you are called. There it is. Look at chapter verse, verse 17, same chapter. This I say, testify to the Lord, that you may no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He also says in chapter 5, verse 2, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. He says it also in chapter 5, look at verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. This is your manner of life. This is how you conduct yourself. And the word is in present tense. It means your continued walk today. Not how you just walked yesterday, but your continued walk today. I'm praying that your walk today, that you receive Lord, that you would walk in Him. Walk as those that have received Christ Jesus the Lord. In fact, we find here in this, these verse first two verses here, verses 6 and 7, we find six features of our walk. That's all we're going to talk about today. Six features of our walk. Number one, we're to walk as, as they have received Jesus Christ the Lord. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, there's still an argument today about the Lordship of Christ and salvation. Is He, is he Lord? Is He just Savior? And somewhere down the road you, you have this service that you come and throw your stick in the fire or something. And on those, that day you make Him Lord of your life. You receive Him as Lord that day. But it's two separate uh, situations. And, and it may, maybe you could do it once, but most of the time, most people, it's, it's receiving the Savior over here and somewhere over here you receive Him as Lord. In fact, Bob and I looked at some, some material that we were considering using for this place right here. And I made quick look to that issue. And that's what they said. Now that may sound small to you, but Bob and I believe, and to Jonathan as well, that is an attack upon not only Christology, but soteriology. He is Lord. You receive Him as Savior and Lord, but here's the, here's the issue. You're going to spend the rest of your life finding out just how Lord He is. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This is the doctrine of Christology. They received a person, they received a person not a philosophy. They received Christ. And as I said, you don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. And you become aware of and learn of His Lordship through the rest of your life. That we're to walk in Him, He says, to live in, a, in union with Him. To live a lifestyle that's patterned after His. Jesus says, I always do those things that, you might know the verse, please my Father. Or over in 1 John 
chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for all the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are His. If we, whoever then says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same manner as He walked. Hmm. Obedience. It's not an option. Disobedience is not an option. Disobedience is not an option. Obedience to His Word, to obey His commands. That's, that's how we know. That's the fruit. Or, we could put it this way, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus have me to respond? This past Wednesday, Melody and I went up to Costco, so it was a blessing. And a woman in a Chevrolet SUV decided she didn't like me. And she keyed my car. See, I'm doing this to keep from saying something much. I told Ashley what I wanted to say. She goes, Dad, I still think that's a little. What I want to say is, may the fleas of a thousand camels invade your armpits. <laughs> How am I to respond in this situation? How do I walk in a manner that pleases the Lord? I'm still mad about it. I am. But how do I respond? How do I respond? The old hymn, Oh, to be like thee, precious Redeemer. But back in our text, he not only said to walk in him, but to be rooted and built up in him. It means to put your roots down. We, we used to ask it that way. You know, where, 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 where are your roots from? Where, where, where did you grow up? Where, where is home for you? That's what we're saying. Where, where are we? Where are, where are your roots? Where, where do we draw our life from? What produces fruit in us? Are we rooted in Him? Are we like the great redwood that sucks up 500 gallons of water a day? To receive nourishment and, and strength. I, I grew up in the eastern part of the state. We had those big pine trees with those big tap roots. I, again, didn't know anything until Google, but I found out that there's a tree called a shepherd's tree in the Middle East, I think, that its tap root is 230 feet deep. Can be that long. That's a tap root. Are ours like that? In our at our house, we had a section of the park that was wooded, and the builder didn't want to clear it, which is fine. But I had, I think, six red oaks. 
If you don't know anything about red oaks, they have a tendency to rot in their core. And the way you find out that they rotted is when they fall down and land on your car or your house. One fell during the storm and landed on my neighbor's brand new Avalon and busted the sunroof. I had one, we just had some others cut down and Monday was a little tight and I asked the guy, I said, listen, can you, can you just not take down that tree? He goes, I'll leave the rest on, but I'm not, ta- I'm not leaving that one. It was a huge 75, 80 foot tree. He cut it down and that thing was held up by a ring about that wide. Rotted to the core. Wind comes, wet ground comes. You know, we can be like that, can't we? We think our roots are deep. We think we're controlled, but we find out in our core there's decay. We find out that when the storm comes, we're not as rooted as we once thought we were. And that's where God finds them. Are you rooted in Him? Psalm 1 doesn't come to mind you should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season it says also to be built up it's continual action to be being built up in him it's a proper foundation according to Acts 20 this is enhancing the relationship we're, we're digging deep into the into uh, the, the life of Christ our lives are planted in Him. We're, we're spending our remaining days becoming a, a building worthy of the foundation, one writer says. And we're being built up in Him. That's His prayer for these people. I, I, want you to, I want you to walk like the Lord. I want you to be faithful in your walking. I want you to be your, your taproot to go deep into His Word that when the storms come and rock comes, you won't fall. And you're being built up. You're constantly being built up. You, you don't know it all, and you know you don't know it all. And you're constantly reading. I remember a pastor friend of mine, Dr. Billy Martin. I don't know if Jonathan remembers him, Dr. Billy. And he was in Winston-Salem one day, and he ran into a bookstore, and at 80-some years old, there was Vance Havner still buying books. Wow! If you don't know who Vance Havner is, you missed a treat. But he's still buying books at 80 years old. That's being built up. You're spending your remaining days becoming a building worthy of the foundation in which you are founded. It means, fifthly, to be established in the faith, he says. And established in the faith, the stability, the, the firmness of the faith. And to realize you can't do it on your own. You've got, to have, you've got to have Him. He's got to be the one doing it in your life. He's speeding through these last couple. Abounding, verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, this is what it ought to produce. This, this walking in the Lord, this being rooted and built up in Him, the having our faith established in Him and being taught we are we will be abounding in thanksgiving. This is what it's producing. 
It should produce an inner joy and a gratitude. Psalm 19 and verse 8, the statutes of the Lord, that's God's house rules, are right and it's interesting what they do. They rejoice the heart. The joy that you're, you're, you're looking for is found in obedience to the Word. That should be our prayer for people. That these people in this place, that, that they would have the Word of God and that they would be rooted, but they'd find their joy there because i got news for you, there's nowhere else to find it. Not there. But their joy is in the Lord. The more the believer learns about God and His redemptive purposes, the more that he should love Him for what He has and is doing for them through Christ. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite authors, wrote a, a book called um, Disciplines of a Godly Man. I'd encourage it. But he's writing about this section right here about walking in thanksgiving. He says, A healthy Christian's walk spills over with gratitude and praise, he says. We're not talking about mindless mouthing of cliches. Two men were walking through a field when suddenly an angry bull chased them. They headed for the fence as fast as they could move. Say a prayer, cited one to the other. I don't know any, answered his bat huffling and puffing companion. You, you, you've got to, he said. The bull is getting closer. Okay, shouted the friend. I'll pray the only one I know. And as the horns of the bull came within striking range, the running man offers, what we're about to receive, the Lord make us truly grateful. <laughs> See, Paul's not talking about mindless piety, but praise deep in the soul. He goes on to say, thankfulness is a good test of the spiritual state of your life. A thankless spirit betrays the life of which no longer is focusing on the greatness of Christ. Can I read that again? The thankless spirit betrays a life which is no longer focusing on the greatness of Christ. It is looking down, not up. Thankful hearts herald spiritual health. Alexander McLaren, the life which in all influenced by which is all influenced by thanksgiving, will be pure, strong, happy, a continual counting of the gifts, and its thought of the giver, not less happy and beautiful in its glad surrender of itself to Him who has given Himself for and to. The noblest offering that we can bring, the only recompense which Christ asks, is that our hearts and our lives should say, We thank You, O Lord. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to our God continually. A continual thanksgiving will ensure continuous growth in our Christian character in the increase, constant increase in strength and the depth of our faith. See, the Gnostics were coming into the church at Colossae and they were finding success around thankful people. But it's our duty to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Or Hebrews 13, through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, a fruit of lip, from the fruit of lips that confess His 
his name. Thankfulness is a good test of our spiritual state. Thanklessness betrays the life which no longer focuses on the greatness of Christ. You're going to see in a few moments about a place that we're pouring our heart into. You say, how can I pray for these people? Pray for them like you pray for others that they would walk in a manner worthy of His calling. That they would know what it means to walk in Him as He walked to please Him. That they would be rooted in Him, nourished, strengthened, have a a taproot that's deep into Christ. That they would continue to be built up in Him, made strong and made firm. That they would know what it means to be stable, established in the faith, and, and not driven by every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. And that will produce an abounding thanksgiving overflowing into gratitude. But that's how we ought to pray for each other. That's how we ought to pray for each other. Father, take my brother over there, take him deep. May he know the sufficiency of your word. Father, may, may in their suffering, would they, would they bring honor and praise to you? God, strengthen them in their walk. That's our prayer. And even though Paul had never seen these people, he's offering the same prayer, he would pray for us. That we should pray for one another. Father, we thank you for the truth, graciousness of your word. And Father, we would find ourselves praying like that coming boldly before the throne of grace on behalf of others that that we don't even know. But Father, our prayer is the same. That they know what it means to be walking in a way that's pleasing to You. That they would be rooted in You. That they would be continually being built up in You. That they would be established and stable in their faith. And Father, that it would produce an, an abounding thanksgiving to God and to God alone. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the life of providence. Thank you for using us in a, in a place like you're using us. And I pray that what, what, we're, what, we're, what we're teaching there will produce a thanksgiving to God like none other. But Father, I pray that you do that work here as well. Take us deep. Help us all to walk worthy of the manner in which we are called. Help us to continue to be built up in you, stable in our faith but abounding in thanksgiving and praise to our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hymn number